invite you to keep your Bibles open as we look together at Mark chapter 10, and let's, let's pray. Lord, we, we pray again what we sang moments ago, that you would show us Christ, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts before your word, and that your spirit would take your word and bury it deep into us, Lord, that we might be changed. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are returning to our fall series uh, and to the Gospels, where our goal has been to meditate on the heart of Christ uh, during his earthly ministry, specifically looking at how he treated others and what that shows us about his love, even for us. Uh, if we are not careful, it's really easy for our relationship to, with Jesus to, to get stuck in the theoretical, uh, to, to have an informational relationship with Jesus, which is not unimportant. We need sound doctrine that's essential for knowing Christ. But as we've said multiple times throughout the series, Jesus is more than a doctrine. He's a person a person whose heart is filled with love for us. And, and so we want to see that heart by looking carefully at how he treated others, to see how he loved them, and therefore to understand more deeply uh, and reflect more fully how he loves us. That's been our goal. And that brings us this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, where we're going to consider the astonishing love of Christ. And as we've seen in these stories, Jesus often surprises us. He often does something unexpected, something shocking even uh, in his words or in his actions. But as we've also seen, it's often in those surprising moments that his love is made more clear, where his love is revealed. And there are no shortage of astonishing moments in the story before us. So at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem uh, for what will be his final week on earth, uh, the Passion Week. He is about to, he's going there to celebrate the Passover, and he's about to be arrested and falsely accused and tortured and crucified, and then to be raised on the third day. He is on his way to complete his redemptive work, what he came to accomplish, to give his life as a ransom for many. And along the way, on that journey, that final journey to Jerusalem, he's approached by someone whom Mark simply identifies as a man. Though Luke tells us that he's a ruler, and Matthew tells us that he was young. And so we typically refer to this story as the rich young ruler, put all of those together. And this man asks Jesus what appears to be a very sincere question. He, he runs up to him. He kneels before him. There's a posture of humility there. And he says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I've been in ministry for over 15 years in campus ministry, church context. In all of my years of seeking to make Christ known, never once has someone rushed up to me out of the blue and said, tell me how to become a Christian. You know, just, that's like the dream question, right? Tell me how I can be saved. How, what, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. If you're trying to make Christ known, that's the one you're waiting for as you love your neighbors and, and, and reach out to your friends. And so you expect here with this, you know, slow softball right over the home plate, you expect that this is where Jesus is going to break out the four spiritual laws or, or the bridge illustration or some sort of explanation of the gospel. I mean, even just John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's how you inherit eternal life. But instead, we find the first surprising turn in the story. The first astonishment. Jesus' answer feels kind of cold and an awful lot like legalism. I mean, look at what he says in, in verses 18 and 19. First, he calls out the way that the man addresses him. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And of course, what exactly Jesus is saying, a lot of people have struggled to understand that, is he kind of refusing to play the compliment game. I called you good, now you say something nice about me. Uh, is he trying to direct the man's attention to the goodness of God, which this man, despite his obedience, ultimately falls short of? Uh, is he subtly trying to point out his own divine authority? Like, only God is good, and so if don't call me good unless you're willing to recognize me as God. Um, I think it's probably the latter, but he, he, it's kind of a cold response, right? And then after that, he points the man not to grace or to faith, but to the law. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus' answer to that question is astonishing uh, because it's not what we expect him to say and because we know that's not how you inherit the kingdom of God. Like he says that elsewhere. It's not how it works, right? That's, the New Testament's clear on that. Again, John 3.16, who, whoever believes will have eternal life. Or Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Even the Old Testament makes it clear. Uh, Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But what we need to remember here is that Jesus is answering this man's question, not ours. He is not speaking generally on the subject. He's, re he's replying to a very specific person. And remember what we've seen so far about his love, his omniscient love, how he knows things that people can't see uh, and knows exactly what we need, or his, his disruptive love where he sometimes does something shocking or surprising to help wake us up to see who he really is. And so, while it's not the answer we expect, and it's not the answer we would give, I think we need to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt in that conversation and see where this conversation goes. So he points the man to the law, and the man responds in verse 20. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. 
Now, that response probably strikes us as a bit on the nose, a little bit hypocritical. Um, I mean, who would actually say that? You point at the Ten Commandments, yeah, yeah, that's, I, I've, I've kept that since I was a kid. Uh, but again, the impression that the narrator gives here is that the man's being sincere. He's not, you know, uh, trying to trap Jesus in his words or anything. Uh, for starters, Jesus doesn't rebuke him as a hypocrite. That's interesting, because when Jesus meets hypocrites, he usually rebukes them, right? So, so he doesn't rebuke him as a hypocrite, and, and in terms of keeping the old covenant law, while Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount directs us to the heart underneath the commandments, the, the Ten Commandments themselves mostly talk about our behavior, such that uh, one could technically keep those commandments. I mean, even Paul said uh, in Philippians 3, Prior to his relationship with Christ, he said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So the man seems sincere. He seems confident in his faithfulness to the law. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that or call him a hypocrite. He does, however, point out the one thing missing from this man, which brings us to the second astonishment in the story. Verse 21 And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's the second astonishment in the story. Jesus' answer sends the man away. Now, you don't expect that. When someone comes up to Jesus and says, how can I be saved, basically, you don't expect the reply for the man to just walk away. I mean, here's a guy who sincerely wants to follow Jesus and know God, and Jesus, his answer is so demanding that he loses the sale. And why would he do that? The man was disheartened by the saying. He was shocked. He was saddened. He did not see that coming, and it sucked the wind out of him to hear it. And you think about it, I mean, what an impossible standard, right? To sell everything you have and give to the poor? Is that something Jesus expects everybody who follows him to do in order to receive eternal life? I mean, that's a, that is a shocking reply. Uh, Even his own disciples are shocked by Jesus' words. If you look at verses 23 to 26, after the man leaves, Jesus looks around at his disciples and he says to them twice, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then again in verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that is a word picture for you, right? A camel going through the eye of the needle. And no, it doesn't refer to some small gate in Jerusalem where a camel could only make it through if it went down on its knees. You sometimes hear that. That's not historically true. Um, it's, a, it's a ridiculous picture. It's like sucking an elephant through a straw. That's the picture there, right? You can't do it. It's impossible. And so notice the disciples' reactions to both statements. They were amazed at his words, verse 24. They were exceedingly astonished, verse 26. 
they didn't have a category for what Christ was saying here. And their astonishment is expressed in the question everyone's asking right now. If this is so, then who then can be saved? Jesus' words are astonishing. They, they almost feel cold and cruel, like a, the way a celebrity musician might respond to a, you know, a young aspiring artist who comes up there on the street to give them a CD sample of their work and who just kind of brushes them off, kind of the, how dare you, you know, expect something from me, smug incredulity. I mean, it just feels dismissive. It feels uninterested. But to conclude that, that that's actually how Jesus is treating the man, to conclude that overlooks one critical detail. Look again at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at the man, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. What Jesus says here, he says not out of cold indifference or unrealistic expectations. He says it out of love. In fact, this is the only place in Mark's gospel where the narrator tells us that what Jesus is doing right now is loving somebody. It's the only place. And you can see the affection. I mean, notice how he looked at him and loved him. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that the celebrity who's, who's full of themselves won't do to the aspiring artist. Make eye contact, because that acknowledges that you're a person and not a problem. I mean, that's the reason we avoid eye contact when you're merging in traffic, right? If I make eye contact, now I, I've shown you that I know you exist and I have to let you in, and so you just pretend like they're not there. Or when we pass someone begging on the street, if we look at them, we risk loving them and caring about them, and that can be costly. As Paul Miller says, love begins with looking. Love begins with looking. Jesus looked at him. He wasn't trying to dodge this interruption as he's headed to Jerusalem. He wasn't trying to get rid of him. I'll just give a short answer and send him on his way. He didn't treat him like a problem. He saw him as a person. And looking at him, he loved him. What he says to him, he says out of love. It's not the indifferent celebrity. It's the careful doctor who's willing to deliver his patient bad news so that they can get the cure they need. And so how is this love? How is it love to point the man to the law and then to hold up an impossible standard? How is that actually loving? How does that communicate or, or demonstrate love for the man? Well, in three ways. First, Jesus' words expose the man's subtle self-righteousness. They expose his true God, which is money, not Christ. And third, they invite him to find life in Christ despite all of that. So, so Jesus' astonishing love, first, it it exposes the man's subtle self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when we measure our identity or our security or our morality, our standing before God, based on our own moral accomplishments, our own achievements. So we are righteous in ourselves. 
And we can see that even uh, in the man's first response. He says, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, you can be sincere and still be self-righteous. Like, he sincerely believed that, but his hope for acceptance before God was based on what he had done for God, on his performance. You can even see it in the way he words the very first question that opens this conversation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's focusing on what he must do on his performance. He's asking the wrong question. Not what we do, but what has Christ done? Our our default is to think that that God rewards greatness. That's our default. Uh, That because God is so great, I have to be great for him in order to be loved by him. That's how we operate. I have to be holy, successful, spiritual, influential. But the irony, the irony is that it's those who recognize their smallness and weakness to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. It's not blessed are the rich in self, the rich in spirit. It's blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor in self. To them belongs the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting to compare Jesus' answer to the rich man with his response to the little children in the very previous scene in Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. As people are trying to bring their children to Jesus, uh, his disciples are rebuking them and trying to stop them from doing that as if they're too small and insignificant to bother Jesus with. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I mean, you you think about the irony. Here's these kids who have nothing and lack nothing. Here's this man who has everything and still lacks the most important thing. The reality is, in the economy of Christ... If you want to gain life, you must first lose it. You must first lose it. To come to grips with our spiritual poverty, with our weakness to come under conviction of sin, and to see our need of Christ. To repent from depending on our own righteousness, on our own good works for God, and instead to cling to Christ's righteousness for us to recognize what Jesus says in verse 27. His disciples ask him, who then can be saved? With man, it is impossible. You can't do it, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Only God is able to save us from our sin, to bring forgiveness and reconciliation and renewal that we might find eternal life. And so it's it's not our greatness that prepares us to know God. It's our smallness. It's our weakness. It's our need of Christ. Many who are first will be last, but the last first. Jesus loves the man enough to show him that. 
He loves him too much to let him go on trusting in his own self-righteousness. And he loves us enough to show us the same. And the second way that Jesus loves the man is seen in how his words expose that man's true God, which is money and not Jesus. When, he, when Jesus asks the man to sell everything he has and give to the poor, he's not laying down a universal standard uh, for how to follow Jesus or to in, inherit eternal life. We know that because he doesn't say that to everybody and because the rest of the New Testament doesn't reiterate that. That's not the basis of salvation. Rather, remember that Jesus is answering this man's question. This man's question. And for this man, inheriting eternal life will require divesting of earthly treasure because Jesus knows the grip that it has on him. Uh, One author writes that I've heard that, that if you want to catch a monkey, Uh, You need a jar, which the monkey can just get his paw into with with his fingers open, but then you put something in the jar that the monkey wants, like a piece of fruit. And and you put that jar temptingly where the monkey's going to find it, and the monkey will reach his hand into the jar to get the fruit, but once he closes his fist around it, he can't get his hand out. And, And he won't let go of the fruit, but unless he does, he's trapped. This man has his hand in a jar wrapped around his money, his stuff. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, and he couldn't give it up. Because he was unwilling to open his hand, he actually imprisoned himself. Now, were his hand wrapped around something else? Family, for instance, or a house, or a certain career, Jesus' answer to him might have looked differently. We see in Luke 9 how he answers different people in different ways. But for this man, it was his money. And, and the idea here gets at what we were looking at over the last three weeks with our short series on giving, how where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And, and how what we spend our money on reveals our true master. That you can't serve both God and and money, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 6. Nor can you serve God and anything else at the same time. So the issue is not just money. It's anything that we would wrap our lives around and be unwilling to let go of for Christ. While Jesus doesn't call everyone who follows him to sell all their possessions and give to the poor, he does call everyone who follows him to lay down their lives and die to themselves. Anyone would come after me, he says in chapter 8. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You can't follow a crucified Savior without ending up crucified. To follow Jesus is to die. The call to say no, no to ourselves, no to our sin, no to our stuff, no to this world, even no to some very good things, that call to say no to that so that we can say yes to Jesus, that applies to every single one of us. And it's, it's challenging, but I think healthy to ask the question, if, if we were the one on the road asking Jesus this question, what would he ask us to give up? What would he ask me to give up? 
what is it in my life that competes the most with my allegiance to God? What am I unwilling to let go of in order to follow him? My grades, my career, my family, my ambition, my romantic interests, my sexuality, my stuff. Can I trust God when he tells me that Jesus is better? Can I trust him? And it's not as though whatever he asks us to give up won't be in some way rewarded. Peter's trying to figure that out in verse 28 when he says, see, we, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, he assures him. He says, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So even when we say no to good things in order to say yes to Jesus, houses, family, friends, God in his grace multiplies what we give up because he places us in the family of Christ where we're all brothers and sisters, right? And, and when you're part of a family, my house is your house. My car is your car. My sufferings, your sufferings, we share those together. That's true of life. That's just how families operate, right? And, and that's true of life in Christ here and now. It will be even truer of the age to come. One author summarizes that the sacrifices we make in leaving homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields to follow Jesus are nothing compared to the returns we'll receive in the community of faith now and in heaven in the life to come. Now, it's important in that assurance to, to notice that one word that kind of stuck out, right? Persecutions. Um, Again, as we share life together in Christ, we share in suffering together until he returns, which reminds us that Jesus' assurance here is not to tighten our grip on this world. It's to loosen that grip. Jesus loves us too much to see us with our hand caught in the jar, a prison of our own making. He loves us too much to see that and not invite us to let it go to let go and follow him and find in him a treasure that nothing in this world can compare to. And so his love, it, it exposes the man's self-righteousness. It exposes his true God, which isn't Jesus. But finally, and I think most astonishing of all, Jesus' words invite the man, despite his self-righteousness and idolatry, to find that eternal life that he's looking for. We should never cease to be amazed at how God responds to sinners, to self-righteous, idolatrous people like me and you and the man in our story, that God's response is to offer forgiveness and new life. We should never cease to be amazed at that. When he looks at the man, he doesn't pronounce judgment on him. He doesn't say, well, buddy, it's too late. You had your chance. 
He looks at him and he loves him and then he invites him to forsake his own righteousness and his great wealth and find out what it truly means to live. In a word, Jesus responds with grace. We've seen that in every single story we've looked at, how Jesus responds with grace. He offers life and forgiveness, not on the basis of this man's greatness or failures, but on the basis of his own love, the love that he perfected on the cross where God did the impossible. You know, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. On the cross, God did the impossible. He saved unworthy sinners from their sin and brought them into a relationship with a holy God. That shouldn't be able to happen. But because Christ is our righteousness and because Christ took that punishment and penalty for our sin, the impossible is true through faith in Christ. That's grace. It's, it's salvation based not on what we do for God, but on what Christ has done for us. The love of Christ is astonishing, not just because it calls us to forsake the world, what the world treasures. It's astonishing because it meets us in our weakness and sin and rebellion and offers us eternal life. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. But God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, not after we figured out what we were doing wrong and made it right, while we were still sinners, sinners, Christ died for us. That is truly amazing, astonishing love. But sadly, not everyone sees it that way. The man in our story rejects Jesus' offer. He counts his worldly treasure as of greater value than eternal treasure in Christ. And this is really one of the saddest stories in Mark's gospel, for someone to be so sincere and so close and yet walk away. So, so how will we respond? How will we respond? What do we do with Christ's astonishing love? And how do we embody that as followers of Christ? Well, in terms of our response... Whether you are a Christian or perhaps someone like this man who's just seeking to understand what God requires of him, we both have to answer the same question. Am I willing to let go of whatever I treasure in order to take hold of Christ? Am I willing to let go of whatever I treasure in order to take hold of Christ? It, it is so interesting in this story how both the man who doesn't know Jesus and the disciples who already follow Jesus, they're both astonished at his words and they both have to learn the same lesson. Jesus even looks on them in a similar way. Just as he looked at the man and loved him in verse 21, so verse 27, Jesus, in response to their astonishment, he looked at them, same word, and said, with man it's impossible but not with God. 
So whether you're a follower of Jesus already or still trying to make sense of God, Jesus' invitation is the same. Hold on to him. Trust in him. Follow him. He invites us to, all of us, to repent of our self-righteousness, to relinquish whatever false gods we hold on to, and to rest in his astonishing love. That's his invitation to everyone. And for those of us who do know Christ and follow him, we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like to embody that kind of astonishing love as his witnesses, as his servants? How do we take the way Jesus loves this man and put it into practice in in the way we love others? At a bare minimum, it means choosing to see people. Choosing to see people, to look at them as Jesus looked at those he encountered. Not avoiding them or ignoring them, but seeing people for who they are, where they are, and caring about them. I mean, what if you made eye contact with people at the grocery store or with people on the sidewalk, with people in your neighborhood or at a restaurant? It's uncomfortable to think about. But what, you know, what if that, that young mom who's struggling to keep her kids in line, the, the lonely elderly person by themselves, what if we made eye contact with a stranger? I mean, that's like against New England code of conduct. But, but imagine the doors for the gospel that Christ might open simply beginning by looking. Love begins with looking. And second, I think it, it means, you know, in terms of embodying this kind of love, I think it means being careful not to undersell the cost of following Jesus. It's tempting when someone uh, expresses an interest in Jesus for us to try and uh, make it look as good as possible, Christianity, right? To emphasize the benefits and to minimize the costs, whatever it takes to close the deal. And part of that, no doubt, is our desire to make clear that this is not something you earn. This is by grace through faith. It's freely given by the Lord. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a necessary response to God's grace, namely repentance and faith, self-denial, suffering for Christ. We're afraid that if we're honest about how hard following Jesus can be, we might lose the sale, right? We might, they might not be interested. They won't want that. And so we bury that in the fine print. We'll, we'll talk about that later on. But think about this. Jesus was willing to let the man walk away rather than pitch him something he knew he would say yes to but wasn't technically true. If we're going to reflect Christ's astonishing love, we cannot undersell the cost of following Jesus, that it is an invitation to death in order to have life. And and to do so would not only be untruthful, it undersells the benefit. It's saying that, that what you'll gain in Christ isn't worth what you're giving up, and that's just not true. Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. There's no greater treasure. 
because there is no more astonishing love. That Jesus would not only call us to forsake what the world treasures, but meet us in our weakness and our sin. And there, in that place, offer us eternal life. That he would give everything to those who bring nothing so that we might have everything forever. That's astonishing. That's amazing. And so, may we repent of our self-righteousness. May we, by his grace, be willing to relinquish whatever false gods we're tempted to hold on to. And may we rest in Jesus' astonishing love. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to speak into our hearts. Lord, we can read these words, but we need your spirit to believe them, to trust you and follow you. And so I pray, by your grace, you would help us treasure Christ so much that we're willing to let go of anything that comes between us that we might follow you. And Lord, I pray that in our treasuring of Christ, that, that the fuel for that, that we would never forget or forsake your amazing love. Lord, may we never cease to be astonished at how you've responded to our sin. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.